Father in heaven, as we look back over the things you've been doing in this church, Lord, we, we realize that you have so many more things in store for this church in the future. And I just pray that as we go through what is arguably one of the, the more, more possibly one of the most important chapters of Scripture, Matthew chapter 25, I just pray that the lessons that you have embedded in these stories, in these parables, that they would be clear to us today. May your spirit be here in our midst, working upon my heart and my mind as I communicate, um, gifting me with the ability to share this message, Lord. And may your Holy Spirit be here also, um, working upon each person's hearts and ears that are listening, so that each person can clearly understand this message, understand how to apply it to their life, and may each person be drawn more closely to you as a result, is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week... Pastor David was sharing on Matthew chapter 24. And uh, Matthew chapter 24, the the grand theme of this chapter is the second coming. And as we're going through, there was a, um, and as I was re-looking at it this week, there was an observation that I made, which is, I want to sort of draw out and show to you, which is really going to create a bit of a foundation for our study today. And this is, here we go. This is the observation that I want to present to you, and that is Matthew 24 presents a tension between two things, and this tension is between knowing and not knowing, okay? It's a a tension between knowing and not knowing. Now, what do I mean about this? Now, to give you, for those who weren't here maybe last week, uh, Matthew 24 is basically an extended answer to a question that is given to Jesus by his disciples, and it's found in Matthew 24, verse 3, where the disciples, they left the temple and they were pointing out to Jesus the, the, the grandeur and the majesty of, of, the, of the Jewish temple. And Jesus looks to them and says, uh, and he tells them this prophecy that, every, that this whole building is going to be destroyed and not one stone will be left upon another. And the disciples came to him privately and this is the question that they asked Jesus. They said, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. Now, they thought these two things were all wrapped up together, uh, where, as we learned last week, in fact, these are two separate events, and they thought they were asking one question, when in reality, they were asking two questions. And so Jesus gives this, this, this elaborate answer, which is, in a, in a masterful way, he combines two answers into one answer. And one of the challenges that we're wrestling with last week is, how do we decipher this structure of Matthew 24 because in order to properly understand it, we need to know when is Jesus referring to the destruction of, of Jerusalem and the temple? When is Jesus referring to the, the second coming and the end of, end of the age, as it says there? And when is Jesus referring to both of these things? And one of those sections was in the first, uh, where the first 14 chapters, we get a series of signs. And we learned last week that these signs refer primarily, firstly and primarily to the destru- lead up to the destruction of Jerusalem, and then in a sort of typological sense, in a secondary sense, they are also going to be fulfilled in the lead up to the grand climax of this world's history, and that is the second coming of Jesus. And so those signs are things like false Christ, wars, famines, earthquakes, persecutions, increasing wickedness, and finally the worldwide gospel proclamation. And now it's not my job to give a detailed uh, sermon on Matthew 24 today, but I wanted to just point out, bring out just one of these signs and an example of how these are being fulfilled around us today. Um, and that is the one of earthquakes. I'm not sure if you've been following the news recently, but what I, in the last few weeks, I've noticed a huge amount of earthquakes happening in just completely different parts of the world. Just let me give you an, a few examples of this. In the last four weeks, November 14 in New Zealand, there was an earthquake, a 7.8 earthquake, which caused all sorts of damage and cost billions of dollars, they reckon, of of damage over in New Zealand. November 22 in Japan, earthquake on the Richter scale of 6.9. El Salvador, November 25, 7 on the Richter scale. December 1 in Peru, 6.3. December 7 in Indonesia, 6.5. This one has left um, tens of thousands of people homeless. Many people died in this earthquake. December 8, now these are just in the last couple of days, there was one big one off the northern, um, the coast of northern California, 
Also on December 8, there was one in China, 6.2 on the Richter scale. December 9, huge one in the Solomon, this is yesterday, huge one in the Solomon Islands, 7.8 on the Richter scale. These are, these are not little earthquakes. These are, these are just gigantic, shattering earthquakes. And this morning, they had another one in the Solomon Islands at a 6.9. And so that's just taking one of these little signs out of the, the sequence of signs that we, we see in Matthew 24. And it just shows how these things are being fulfilled all around us. And the way that we understand these things, in Matthew 24, verse 33, uh, it says, So also, when you see all these things, you know that it is, He is near at the very gates. And last week, you remember that these things refers primarily again to the, the, the lead up to the destruction of Jerusalem. But also, this is how we are to understand these signs leading up to the second coming. And when we see all these, these things happening around us, the text is saying that we should be able to be aware and have a knowledge of the soonness and the imminence of Jesus' second coming. And so there is this, I said this is tension between knowing but also not knowing. So after sharing these signs, um, we get a series of verses which seem to, when we just think, oh, we're going to know exactly when Jesus is going to be coming, we get a series of verses that seems to be saying almost the opposite. In verse 37, Jesus says, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. That's not knowing. Another one in verse 42, Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day the Lord is coming. Verse 43, But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Here we see this, this, this element of not knowing when Jesus is, is going to be coming, and these are really set in tension in Matthew chapter 24. There's a tension between knowing and not knowing when, the, the answer to the when of when Jesus is going to return. And there's a number of sort of practical um, things that we can draw out of this. And in regards to the knowing, I, I, I'd like to suggest that knowing is to fill us with a sense of urgency. When we see these things around us, is it, to make, it's, it should make us realize the seriousness of the times that we're living. It should urge us into a deeper walk with God. It should earn us, urge us into a renewed passion for the lost um, and into sh- being involved in God's mission on this earth. But not knowing should create in us a consistency. The fact that we don't know and, and that Jesus' is coming is going to be like a thief should create in us a realization that we can't just be able to watch the signs and know when to get ready, but we need to have an attitude of readiness today, tomorrow, in a week, next year, and for our entire life. We need to have a consistency of readiness. And finally, as, as David pointed out last week as well, Jesus is to be our primary motivator. The soonness of Jesus' second coming is not to be the main reason why we are, we are getting ourselves ready to, to meet Jesus, but it needs to be our love for our Savior and our recognition of what He has done for us in, 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 make, in making available His grace and His salvation. When we realize that, that should be the thing that just more than anything lights a fire in our hearts to serve God and to be a part of his mission in this world. And that brings us, and I want that to sort of create a bit of a foundation for um, chapter 25, in which we have a series of three stories. And these three stories, um, two parables, and the final one is more of a description of what's going to happen than exactly a parable. But these are really, uh, these questions, Matthew 24 really deals with the question of when, and, and what Jesus' second coming will be like. Will be like. But Matthew 25 looks at the practical question and the application of, okay, in the light of what's going to happen, in the light of these things happening around us, how should we live today? How do we prepare for these things that are coming our way? And so the title of our message today is, Give Me Oil in My Lamp. Open up your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 25.
Matthew chapter 25. And we're going to start in verse, verse 1. It says, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Now, I want you to notice that word, then. Okay, this is a connecting verse. This is a connecting word that connects chapter 25 with chapter 24. So as we learn about this, we need to realize that the, the broader context is the soon return of Jesus Christ. Um, so then, so, so when Jesus comes back, when, when we're, in regards to the return of Jesus, it says, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Now, to understand this, this parable, we need to understand a bit of the, the way in which weddings were done back in the time of Jesus. In today's weddings, and this is surely what's going to happen in, 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 a, in nine days' time, the bride is the focus of the wedding. And everyone is waiting for the bride to show up. And often, and often that bride, the bride is in the weddings I've been in the past can be fairly late um, to, those, to those, those weddings. Um, I don't know if that's going to happen when I get married or not. But in Bible times, the focus wasn't so much on the bride of the wedding, but the bridegroom. And what the, the groom would do was, the groom would start at his, his house, and the bride and the wedding party would be at the, the parents' house of, of, the, of the bride. And often this would happen after dark, and the, the groom would go on a, on a journey over to the, the bride's house. And when he gets there, he would meet his bride, and then together with all of the, the wedding party and all the people celebrating with them, they would ha- form this, um, this group of people that with, by, with lamps and torches, they would make the journey back to, to the, the, the groom's, the husband-to-be's home. And when they get there, they would have a feast that is ready for them and the celebration would, would, would um, begin. And so in this, and, and Jesus looks at this, these, these weddings and he sees in this, this, in, in this way in which they do weddings a an awesome little picture of, um, and an opportunity to explain what it's going to be like when Jesus comes back. And it's a cool picture. Jesus, in heaven, he goes down to this earth in order to get his bride and take, him, take them back, take her, take the church, take his believers back with him, to back to his place to spend eternity with them. It's this beautiful little picture. And so the parable of the ten virgins is really... The parable of another name that I like to use for this is the parable of the ten Adventists. Okay, and and what is an Adventist? The word Advent just simply means arrival. It's the arrival of a person or a thing, and so we we accord Seventh Day Adventists because we are people who are waiting and we are longing for the arrival of our Savior Jesus. Okay, so we're Adventists, and so here these these women they are symbolically representing a group of people who are waiting for the arrival, the advent of their Savior. And so these people do not just represent everyone in the world, but these are representing those who, in their, at least in their minds, they, they have a position in their life where they are looking forward to, anticipating, and waiting for their Savior and waiting for the second coming. These, this is the parable of the ten Adventists. And it's not just the seventh Adventists, but anyone who is awaiting the return of Jesus. Now let's keep reading on. Verse 2. It says, Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flocks of oil with their lamps. Now the word lamps there could either mean um, like a, a little lamp or it could be, be like a torch. And if it was the torch version, it would be like a stick with, a, with these rags dipped in oil and they'd wrap it around the top of the stick and then they would light it and that would sort of lead the way. Either way, if it was a lamp or a, or a torch... What is, requ- is required here is, is oil in order to keep that, that light burning. And there's a distinction between the wise Adventists, the wise people who are looking forward to, to the, the bridegroom, and the foolish ones. The distinction that we see here is whether or not they have extra oil with them. Verse 5, it says, as, as the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Here we see a, a, a new sort of contrast. Remember how we had this tension between knowing and not knowing? What we're going to see here is a tension that is between delay 
and surprise. Okay, so they're waiting for the bridegroom to come, and they're, they're eager and they're looking forward to it, but the time goes on, maybe the, the hours went on, and they grow, their, their lamps go out, they fall asleep, and there is a delay. But then, at midnight, there's a cry that's given, and quick, 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 the bridegroom is here, and there's this panic that takes place in, in the story. Verse, uh, verse 7. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. So here we see in this panic, the one group joins the, the procession, another group is unready, unprepared, and they go off to try and find this oil. Verse 11, Afterward the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, and here we have some of the, possibly some of the saddest words that you'll hear in Scripture, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Since we are like these, these um, ten women, we are a group of people who are awaiting the return of Jesus. It means that this parable is of supreme importance for us to understand. It means that it is exceedingly important for us to know what is this oil? What is this representing? How can we be a part of the, the wise group of people and not be a part of the foolish group of people? And so that's really the, the goal of my message today, is to unpack um, these things. And I want to unpack the following three questions. Number one, what is the oil? Number two, how do we get the oil? And number three, what will be the result of the oil? So let's start with the first one. What is the oil? Let's unpack a little bit of the symbolism here. Now, we've already looked at the ten women represent those who are awaiting Christ's return. But there's a couple other important symbols that we need to understand. And the, the second symbol that we need to understand is what does the lamp represent in here? Now, we have to be a little bit, in, a little bit cautious when we interpret parables because... Um, Historically, there have been commentators through, throughout history who have tried to ascribe a, a symbolic meaning to every single little detail in the parables, okay? when there's no textual basis to do so. So what we need to do is actually look at the, the symbols and, and ask ourselves the question, when we try to understand these, is there actually a biblical textual basis for, um, for the things that we are ascribing to these, these symbols? And I believe there is for the lamp. In, in Psalm 119, verse 105, we have this little um, psalm written by David in, in, a, in a chapter, there's the largest chapter of the Bible, which is all about the beauty of God's Word. And in this, he says these words, Your Word, speaking about the Scriptures and the Word, the word of God, is a lamp for my feet and a light to my, on my path. So here we see biblical precedent for uh, giving... The, the symbol of a lamp, the meaning of the Word of God. Now, even just that probably isn't quite enough to really um, lock in, is this what it means in this parable? We have to look back at the parable and say, is the con- is, does it actually fit the context within the parable itself? And let's think about it. If these ten women are representing people who are waiting, uh, who are in darkness, or are awaiting the return of their Savior Jesus... What role does that lamp play in the parable? Well, the, the, the lamp is that which gives them light in their, dark, in their dark world. It's the thing that guides them on their path towards their salvation. And is that a fitting symbol for the Bible? The Bible is, the, is, is that which shines light into our darkness. It reveals to us what's really going on. And more than anything, it, it lights our path on the path to salvation. And so the lamp in this parable rep- represents the Word of God. Now, this is interesting, and that is that the five foolish uh, virgins all had the Word of God. What warning does that tell us? Isn't the Word of God enough? 
Let's cast our minds back to a story of Jesus in John chapter 5, verse 31. He's, deal- he's interacting with the Pharisees there. Now, the Pharisees in the time of Jesus, they were the ones that knew the Bible the best. Okay? They had memorized huge portions of it. They had discussed and debated all sorts of questions in relation to the Bible. And yet, when Jesus shows up, they reject his ministry. There's a very interesting, interesting uh, thing that Jesus says to the Pharisees. He says, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So here we see a group of people that has the Word of God, and yet it is inadequate because there is a stubbornness, there is a refusal on their behalf to really to actually welcome in Jesus' ministry and come to him and obtain the, the eternal life and the things that the Bible is supposed to, to give them. And so the Word of God is not enough. We need oil as well. So what does is, what is the oil represent? Well, there's a couple of ways we can sort of look at this and look at, looking at the, the wider imagery of oil in, in Scripture. And the first one, we need to understand that oil was used to anoint people. Okay, whether it was often for kings, kings would be anointed with oil, um, and, was, and it was a symbolic way of, of sort of initiating them into the, into the kingdom. Um, sick people were anointed with oil, and we were instructed to, when people are sick, to gather the elders around and to anoint them uh, with oil. And when Jesus turned up on the scene, he was to be the Messiah. And the word Messiah means the anointed one. And in the minds of everyone, this was their coming king. This is the person who would be anointed as their king and their savior from the problems of the world. And their mind was the problem of, of the Romans. And so, but what was Jesus actually anointed with? In Acts chapter 10, verse 38, it says, How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. So here we see that this, this thing that pointed forward to um, Jesus coming, we think of David, who was a type of, 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 Je- of the Messiah, who was anointed with oil, was pointing forward to how Jesus would be anointed, but not with oil, but with the Holy Spirit. Oil represents the Holy Spirit. Now there's another story in a prophecy in Zechariah 4 verse 2, where we see this connection between oil and the Holy Spirit. Now this is when we read through this, it's a little bit hard to sort of picture in your mind exactly how all this works, but I want you to try and imagine in your minds this vision that Zechariah is, is receiving. And it says, And he said to me, What do you see? I said, I see and behold a lampstand, all of gold, with a bowl on the top of it, and seven lamps on it, with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on the top of them. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on the left. Okay, so here we see this essentially a contraption which is designed to bring oil from the olive trees down into the lamp so that it can, it can burn. So this is, this is a, a vision of, of how the oil makes it to the lamp. And then it goes on to, to say the interpretation of this, this vision. It says, The angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my Lord. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, not by, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And so what we see here in Zechariah's vision, it was of a contraption that delivers oil from the tree to the lamp. And its message was this, success comes by the spirit. So the oil in this parable is symbolic of the Holy Spirit. And what that reveals to us is that when it comes to preparing for I'll come back to that in a second. When it comes to preparing for the return of Jesus, the key thing that we need to have, the key thing that will make us prepared is the Holy Spirit. Up here I have a picture of my friend Ben. And does he look pretty prepared for a journey here? Okay, he's got all of his stuff. Now I want you to just imagine that you're going on a journey. Okay, you, you, get, you spend months and months preparing for this. You have your tickets booked, you have your travel insurance, insurance you have your suitcase with all your clothes in it, you have um, maybe a little first, 
first aid kit in, so, in case something goes wrong. You have all of these, these preparations that you've made, and you just, you just feel so prepared. And you go down to the airport, you look at your, your watch, and you think, oh, I've still got... I've still got half an hour's time. I've got enough time for this journey. And you go down to the check-in section, and you go there, and you hand them your, 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 your ticket, and they say, oh, very good. Now, can I, um, can I see your passport? And you go, oh, no. I don't have my passport. If you have everything else in your possession, but you don't have your passport, are you prepared to go on that journey? Are you going to go on that journey? That one thing in that moment becomes the essential thing that you need in order to go on that journey. And this is really what we see taking place in this, in this parable of the ten virgins. We see they have everything. They've got their Bibles. They're waiting for Jesus. But when the time comes, they're missing the essential thing, and that is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the most important thing that prepares us for Christ's return. As I wrote that, I think, is that an overstatement? I believe it's in the text. It's the Holy Spirit that prepares us for the return of Jesus. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 to 14 says this, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with what? The promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his, of his glory. Now, I've just, in the last week, uh, last couple of weeks, we've worked out our, uh, where we're going to live when we move down to the Central Coast. And when you, when you put in a house application, they say, um, they, they ring you up and say, oh, very good, your application has been accepted and we want, uh, we want to offer you this um, contract or what, to lease this house. And they say, in order to secure this lease, you need to pay a deposit. And that deposit is going to guarantee that you're going to actually come through and, and, and lease this house. And this is very much what the Holy Spirit is in these verses here. God gives us the Holy Spirit and it says, as the guarantee of our inheritance. If you possess the gift of the Holy Spirit, you possess the gift of eternal life. So, what, so we looked at what is the oil. That's question number one. The, the oil represents the Holy Spirit. So how do we get the oil? There's no point knowing that we need it, but how do we actually get it? And I want to suggest three important things in order in, to make sure that we are receiving the Holy Spirit into our lives. And the first one is this. Have a relationship with Jesus. Okay, let's go back to the verse that we just read. And in this verse, there's a little... Um, sort of clue as to ha- what happens preceding the reception and being sealed with the Holy Spirit. It says this, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, okay, so that's when you, after you've heard the, the good news about Jesus, that he came to this earth, that he lived upon, upon this planet, and he was died, and, and he was buried and rose again, when you heard the gospel of our salvation and believed in him, you were sealed with the promise Holy Spirit. It's after we enter into a trusting relationship with our Savior Jesus that we receive the Holy Spirit. Now, go back to your to chapter 25, Matthew chapter 25, and we're going to go to um, the, the end of the parable in verse 11, and let's see if we see elements of this in the parable as well. Matthew 25 verse 11 says this, Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly, now this is this is symbolic of Jesus um, and, and people wanting to, to, be, to be saved. And Jesus says, imagine Jesus saying this, truly, uh, truly I say to you, I do not know you. So here we see that the, the, the foolish virgins are not just devoid of the Holy Spirit, but they're devoid of a relationship with God. They're devoid of that relationship with the Spirit. And the two go hand, hand in hand. The reception of the Holy Spirit is wrapped up with our relationship with Jesus. Point number one. Point number two. Ask for it. This is not just, does this not just seem like the simplest thing ever? Ask for it. In Luke chapter 11 verse 9, it says these words. I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. 
Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Here we see um, a promise by Jesus that in order, if we want to receive the blessings of God, the promises of God, we have to actually ask for them. Now why is that a a requirement at all? If God wants to give it to us, why do we have to ask for it? Well, there's this whole thing that the whole story of the Bible is, is, is sort of um, in, involves in, um, this thing that is central to the whole story of the Bible and the whole story of the, the great controversy, and that is free will. When we think of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, God had this beautiful planet for them, and they would experience it unless they didn't want to. And they chose that they didn't want to. And us as a human race has chosen, we don't want to experience all the blessings of God. And so God doesn't just force them back upon us, but he says, if you want the blessings and the promises that I offer you, you need to ask for them. The verse goes on to say, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Now that's pretty, imagine um, dads who are here, someone comes and says, oh, can I please have a fish to eat? Here, have a serpent, okay? Or if, um, if you ask for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your, fa- to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? What do we know about God the Father and the Holy Spirit from this verse? It's this. God wants to give you the Holy Spirit. It's unmistakable. Just as a father wants to give good gifts to his children, God is in heaven just longing to give us the Holy Spirit. But what's the condition? It's those who ask for it. So if we want to get the oil, we need to have a relationship with Jesus and we need to intentionally ask for the Holy Spirit into our lives. Point number three, repentance. Acts chapter 2, verse 37 to 38 says this, Now, this is describing um, the response of a crowd of people that was listening to a sermon by Peter in the the sort of days after Jesus rose from the dead. And and Peter gave this big sermon. He's talking about what Jesus did for them. And and he's pointing out how the person they crucified upon the cross was actually their savior. And the people who are listening are just absolutely convicted deep into their hearts. And And they cry out to Peter and they say, Um, Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? How do we receive this gift? And how do we receive what you've been preaching to us about? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, and you will receive two gifts. For the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent, and you receive... Forgiveness and the Holy Spirit. But what is repentance? One of my favorite definitions is, was, is written in a book called Steps of Christ by one of the pioneers of the Adventist church, Ellen White. And she wrote, Repentance includes sorrow for sin and a turning away from it. Repentance includes sorrow for sin, being truly mourning your sinful condition, realizing that you don't have it all together. But not just wanting to stay in that situation, but like the prodigal son who was in the mud, actually turn around and walk back to God and say, God, I need you to, to change me. God, I need, I'm sorry for the things I've done and I need you to come in and to transform my life. Repent and be baptized. And baptism is just the outward expression of an inward repentance. And you'll receive forgiveness of your sins and the Holy Spirit. Wasn't well, forgiveness enough? Don't we just need forgiveness? I want you to imagine that there is a terrible criminal that's loose on the Gold Coast. And this criminal is like is a serial killer. And he's just going around and just doing all sorts of terrible crimes, unthinkable things in, in our community, time after time after time after again, after again. And the police, they do this huge big search for him. And eventually, after so many atrocious things have happened, the police capture, capture um, this criminal. And they take him to court, and, and everyone's just eager for revenge, and everyone's so glad that the streets are finally safe again. And he goes up to the trial, and, he, and, the, and the, the sentence is passed. This person is guilty, and they're going to be sentenced to a life 
of imprisonment. At that moment, imagine someone walks up to the front of the, of the courtroom and says, I know that this person has been given a guilty sentence, but I would like to take their place. I want to, to experience life in prison and let this person go. Now, if that happens, has the punishment, will the punishment have been paid? Yes. Will forgiveness have been given? Yes. Is that person now safe to go back out into the community? You wouldn't want that person back in, in the community because that person, unless there is that transformation that takes place in the heart, is not yet safe to be back in the community where everyone else is. And the same is true with our salvation. Jesus has been given the task, and Jesus has been gifted to this world with the task of securing forgiveness of our sins. And that deals with the sins of the past. But the Holy Spirit, who has also been gifted to this world, has been given the role of transforming our lives for the future and and qualifying us for being citizens of of the heavenly courts above and of the new new earth. And so here we see repentance is the the third sort of um, condition that we need to go through in order to secure the Holy Spirit in our life. Now, why why not just asking? Why do we need repentance as well? Well, I'd like to suggest that to ask for the Spirit without the accompanying work of repentance is like taking your car to, mechanic, to the mechanic and not giving them the key. Do you get that? Imagine you take your car down to the mechanic and say, I want you to fix my car. And they say, okay, but you can't have my key and you go home. Okay? You want the, 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 the presence of, of the mechanic in, 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 in working on your car, but you don't give them any access to actually do that work. Well, that's kind of like the, the relationship between asking and repentance when it comes to receiving the Holy Spirit. Um, we ask for the Holy Spirit, but we have to give the Holy Spirit access to our heart. We have to come and, and open ourselves up. We need to confess our sins and say, we don't just want you in our life, but we want you to do the work of transformation in our life. We want you to change us from being a, a person who's... who's, who's Um, got sin as their natural tendency. We want you to change our heart. Give us that heart of flesh that wants to do the things of God, that wants to follow God's God's ways. That's how we get the oil. Have a relationship with Jesus, ask for it, and finally have an experience of repentance. There's two other lessons in this point before we go into what's the result of the Holy Spirit that I just can't preach on this without making these points. And the first one is this. The Holy Spirit needs to be sought when there is no crisis. Okay? What's the event that we see up here on the screen? 9-11, where the two planes flew into the World Trade Center, the two buildings of the World Trade Center, and this terrible crisis that took place. Now, I've got, I was doing a bit of research on this, and I found this article called New York's Post-9-11 Church Boom. Okay. Now, this is describing what t- happened at, a, at a, one of the large churches in New York, run by Tim Keller. And it says this is what happened. It said, The following Sunday, September 16th, so immediately after this, this event took place, it says, Churches overflowed with distraught visitors. At Redeemer, the ordinary attendance of 2,800 ballooned to 4, 5,400. This is like apostolic church growth. This is almost 3,000 people added to their church after this crisis took place. But what do we see in the text of Scripture about when we need to prepare by receiving the Holy Spirit? What we see is that the Holy Spirit needs to be sought when there is no crisis. Let's read again verse 6 to 8. It says in chapter 25, but at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom! Come out to meet him! Crisis has, has happened! Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil for our lamps going out. Panic. They're trying to um, prepare. They're trying to get spiritually ready. They're trying to, res- to find the Holy Spirit. But when the crisis hits, it's too late. And the lesson for us is that we need to wake up. And the Holy Spirit says there needs to be sought when there is no crisis. Lesson number two is that the Holy Spirit 
cannot be shared. It's easy to think as Christians that, that the fact that we go to a, a spiritually on fire church, that we are ready for the coming of, of Jesus. Maybe we're, we're married to someone who, who has a, a deep walk with God. Maybe we are a part of a family that serves God and, and, does every, and is just an example Christian, Christian family. And we're surrounded by people who have the Holy Spirit burning brightly in their lives. Is that enough? Verse 8 in chapter 25 says this, But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. The reason they didn't share wasn't because they didn't want to share, but our preparation is a personal preparation that needs to take place. And there's a really interesting verse back in Ezekiel chapter 14 where, where God is describing to Ezekiel some of the, the, the judgments that are going to come upon this, this city. And, and he says, Son of man, if a country sins against me by being unfaithful and I stretch out my hand against it, it says, even if these men, Noah, was he an example of righteousness? Daniel. You don't find anything that Daniel did wrong in Scripture. He was someone that went into the lion's den. He was an on-fire person for God. And Job, now he had struggles, but he was described as a, as a righteous man. Even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, they could save only themselves by their righteousness, declares the sovereign Lord. The Holy Spirit cannot be shared. It has to be a personal experience. We have to be personally prepared for the soon return of Jesus. Final point. How, oh sorry, that's how we get the oil. Final point is, what will be the result, result of the oil? And I want you to f- go over to verse 31 of Matthew 25. And here we see a description of the final judgment. And I want you to look at what is the thing that determines the result of the final judgment. And it says this, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Verse 32, Before Him will be gathered all the nations and He will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on His left. Then the King will say to those on His right, Come, You who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did you see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it for me. The deciding factor in the final judgment is the way that we treat the least in our society. The hungry, the stranger, the naked, the sick, the imprisoned. But doesn't this seem to go against everything else we read in Scripture? What about verses like this? For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Is our salvation dependent on our works? Well, why then is the judgment being um, determined by our good works? I want you to imagine you're in that scene where the, the wedding party is, 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 has come along and, is, and the, has um, got the, the bride and they're going back through the darkness, back to the, um, the house of, of the husband, husband's house. Um, how do you know who has oil? Imagine it, darkness. How can you see who has the oil in their, in their jars? Will you not see the light shining in their, in their lamps? And this is what we see here. The people who have the Holy Spirit in their life, it will be evident by the light that is shining out from them. Early on in Matthew chapter 5, it said this, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, in the book, 
Christ Object Lessons, which is talking about the parable of the ten virgins, um, Ellen White has these words to say. She says, Christ does not bid his followers strive to shine. He says, let your light shine. If you have received the grace of God, or we could interpret it, if you've received the, the oil of the Holy Spirit and the forgiveness that Jesus offers, the light is in you. You cannot help shining within the range of your influence. How beautiful is that? Having oil in your lamp results in light, and having the Spirit in your life results in love. Give me oil in my lamp. The three points we've looked at is what is the oil? The oil is the Holy Spirit. How do we get the oil? Do you remember the three things? Pursuing a relationship with Jesus, asking for it, and going through an experience of repentance. And what will be the result of, of that oil? Light. We will be lights in this world in such a way that that when the angels go to gather up the people, they, they don't have to look for who has the Holy Spirit in their life, but they'll see the things that they're doing, these acts of love that are shining out from them. Remember at the beginning, we, we talked about how Matthew 24 presents a tension between knowing and not knowing. It also pretend, And Matthew 25 presents a tension between delay and surprise. And all of this, this reveals to us is that we must always be ready. Are we ready today? If Jesus was to come right at this moment, would you be suddenly panicking like the foolish, the foolish um, virgins? Would you be panicking, panicking? I need to quickly get myself prepared. Or will you be ready if Jesus came right now? How do we apply this to our lives this week? And these three points are very practical things that we can do in our life this week, and they're based off the three things that are important for gaining the Holy Spirit in our lives. Number one is this. Intentionally spend time with God each day in prayer and Bible study. Remember at the end of the parable, they knocked on the door, he said, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. None of us has, has to have that experience because all of us has an, have an opportunity to get to know Jesus today through spending that time on a daily basis, reading our Bibles and in prayer. And if you're not doing that currently, I encourage you to intentionally make some plans. How are we going to fit this into our daily schedule? Do I need to wake up an hour earlier? Do I need to stay up an hour later? Do I need to get an accountability partner who's going to be help me through that process? How can I intentionally in, in, um, work on my building a relationship with my Savior Jesus? Point number two, intentionally pray for the Holy Spirit. In your personal prayer, pray that God, that, and tell, tell God and say, God, I want to let you know that the Holy Spirit is welcome in my life. I invite the Holy Spirit into my life to do that work of transformation in me. Pray that individually. Pray that with your families. Pray that with your friends. Pray that as, we need to pray that as a church. Intentionally pray for the Holy Spirit to be an active participant in everything that we do. And finally, prayerfully confess and turn away from sin. The experience of repentance is not a comfortable one. It's not one that we often enjoy, but it's an essential one. It's a sen- what we're doing is we're giving the Holy Spirit the keys to our heart. And we're saying, this is the problem. My heart has a sin problem. I'm inviting you to enter into my life and do your work of transformation upon my heart. And that's my challenge for you this week. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are just so overwhelmed that you have given us all of heaven. You gave us your son in order to secure our forgiveness and to die upon the cross. You gave us, you've given us the Holy Spirit to, to not just to leave us at forgiveness, Lord, but to bring about an actual transformation in our life. And today, corporately, Lord, we are praying. And as I'm talking, I know that there are many other people here praying in their minds. We are praying for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit into our lives. We welcome, we throw the door open. We say, come into our lives, take the key. We recognize that we have a whole lot of mess, Lord. We are sinful. 
We, ha- we, we do not do the things that we should do and we do the things that we shouldn't do and we can't help it. Our natural tendencies are towards sin, Lord, and we just throw up, open the doors and we give you the key of our heart and we say, send your Holy Spirit into our life to work uh, a work of transformation in our lives. Lord, we, we ask that you, would, um, that you would shine your light out of us the scripture says, let your light shine, Lord. It's not about us to strive and to manufacture this light, but we pray that your Holy Spirit would be so powerfully at work in our life that we just simply need to let the automatic and surrender to the process that you are, you are leading and that you are doing, Lord, um, by making us lights in this world. People who, who have love flowing out of us, love for you and love for the least of these in our, in our community and love for everyone, Lord. And I just pray that you'll help us to apply these things. Help us to actually spend time with you in the Word and be with us. And Lord, we just, we, we, since we pray, we're praying this prayer collectively, Lord, we can say with eagerness that we anticipate and we look forward to your soon return because we want to see your face and we want to go with you back up into heaven, Lord, and we want to see the paradise that we, you have prepared for us. We want to be in the crowds of people who are worshipping before you through the ceaseless ages, Lord. We want to experience an eternal relationship with you. We want to experience everything, Lord, that you have planned and purposed for our life. And so we eagerly await for your soon return. And we pray all these things in the precious name of Jesus, who died on the cross for us, who has clothed us with his righteousness. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Hey, greetings from beautiful and sunny Kingscliff, Australia. I want to take just a moment of your time, first of all, to thank you for tuning in, watching the program. I trust it was a blessing to you and your soul, drawing you closer to God and His will for your life. I also want to let you know that we are planning a significant expansion of our existing media ministry here at the Kingscliff Church. To find out more about this expansion and how you can get involved, go to bringitkingscliff.com. You can go either to the homepage or to the Our Gifts page to find out how you can come alongside us and support, not just with your viewership, but also financially and with your prayers. Hey, thanks again so much for watching, and take care.